38 and 39 from two weeks ago. Here's what it says. For I am convinced, that's Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation we'd be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, tonight, Paul's not going to change his mind, but he's kind of going to revisit this separation, and he's going to more or less address a controversial topic. It was controversial in his day. It's still slightly controversial in our day, I would also tell you. And the topic is kind of going to be tonight, chosen versus choice. Chosen slash elected, predestined versus choice. And Brian said, if you were here two weeks ago, that here at Calvary, we teach and believe both. And I would also, of course, agree with that because he's my boss. <laughs> but tonight, I'm going to explain why. Brian just kind of threw it out there. And, and I would make the case two weeks ago, he went about waist deep in that kind of topic. I'm going to go neck deep tonight. I'll be up to my head and treading water. So... Because I want you to know why we believe and teach that, why we believe in both, because it's very complicated. And to sum it all up real fast, they're both in Scripture. That's why we teach and believe both. They're both in here. We're chosen and we're elected, but we also have choice. And, uh, but I want you guys to understand like, why we believe that. So with all that said, let's start in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. This is Paul again. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Well, I would also say I'm not either. I'm going to read a bunch of verses out of Scripture tonight. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 2, he kind of switches a little bit and says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, why is he sorrowful? Why is he anguished? You'll see tonight as we read these verses, he's anguished over the Jewish people, over Israel. And he's anguished because they have rejected Jesus. That's why he's sad, because he knows what their fate is for that rejection. But I'll make a case tonight that they chose that fate. They chose to reject Jesus. Because we all know in Scripture, you know what we call the Jewish people, right? They're his chosen people, exactly. So if they're his chosen people, how did they get rejected? I'm going to make the case they chose to, but... Let's look at a verse on screen. Before we even get started good, I want to put a verse on screen from Matthew. This is out of Matthew 23. Here's what it says. This is Jesus, Jesus' own words. He's overlooking the city. Look what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who've been sent to her. How often I, Jesus, wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But look what the last part says, the part I underlined. You were unwilling. doesn't say unable. It says unwilling. In other words, you made the wrong choice. You weren't willing to believe in me, accept me. That's what he means here. So my opinion, and I hope you would agree with me, they made a bad choice. They rejected Jesus. Wouldn't you say that's a bad choice? I definitely would. So that was the game changer. That's why Paul is sad. That's why he's upset. He knows they rejected their Messiah. They missed it. So let's keep reading. Back to our verse, verse 3. For I, well, this tells you how sad he was. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. That's how upset he is for the sake of my people. But of course he can't do that. 
those of my own race. Because he was, remember, he told us in other verses, I'm the Jew of all Jews. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, I would sacrifice all that for you if I could, the people of Israel, in verse 4. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. So he's telling us why they were chosen. Look at what he just said that their benefits were. Adoption, glory, covenant promises, the law, the temple, the worship. Then he goes on in verse 5. If I move down, he says, theirs, their history, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the ancestry of the Messiah, of Jesus. But look what he says next. Who is God? The Messiah who is God. And he's talking about Jesus, so Paul is clearly right here claiming Jesus is God. Make no mistake about that one. Then he says, forever praised, amen. So he's telling us how good the Jews had it. But he's also going to continue as we keep reading and tell us how they missed out. Verse 6, he says, it is not as though God's word had failed. Because we know this never fails, right? We know this. We're Bible-reading people. We study his word. It does not fail. But look what he says after that. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not all the Jews are Israel. That's kind of confusing, but he'll explain it to us. So we're going to see as we keep reading, God's word didn't fail. The people did. Israel failed. The Jewish nation failed. It was the people. But it's very important for us to notice you know, they made a mistake, but it was not what I would call an ordinary mistake. They, the mistake they made was rejecting Jesus as Lord, as Messiah. Because if we don't kind of be careful here, we'll say, well, oh my gosh, what if I make a mistake? What if I fail? What if I mess up? Well, you're going to. I'm going to. We're all going to. We're people. We fail. We make mistakes. But they made a over-the-top mistake. The mistake they didn't Get forgiven for was rejecting Jesus. So it's not like we have to walk around wondering if God's going to get mad and punish me and never allow me like a second chance or discipline me. It's This was a mistake of all mistakes is how I would put it. Because there's a cost. There is a high cost to rejecting Jesus. And it really leads to separation. Which leads to our title. Our title tonight, if you hadn't seen it yet, it's Rejection leads to ejection. Rejection leads to ejection. They're going to be ejected as God's chosen people because they won't accept Jesus. But I'll explain later. Don't get confused. They are still chosen, but they're chosen after this in a different way. They have to come like we do through Jesus, which brings up our first main point if you're taking notes. If you're taking notes, here's what you want to write down. There's really only one unforgivable failure, and that's the failure to believe and obey. And it's not just believe, because remember, there's other verses I'm not going to read if we don't have time. Satan believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus, so belief is not near enough. It's always tied in Scripture to obedience. Believe and obey. Obey. God requires both. It's not just belief. So let's keep reading. Verse 7. Paul's still talking about Israel, nor because they are his descendants, in other words, are, they're genetically his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
Now, what he's talking about here is a verse from Genesis. I'm going to put it on screen for us. And by the way, when we finish Romans, guess what book we're going to? Genesis. So this will be a little hint of Genesis. Here's what it says, and Paul's quoting this exact verse. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy, and he's talking about Ishmael, and your slave woman, Hagar, listen to what your wife, listen to what Sarah says, because it is through Isaac, not Ishmael, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So that's what the promise is about. And we'll explain that more in a second, too, because Paul's going to continue. Verse 8, he'll kind of explain himself. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent, not the genetic children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise, the promise that your offspring will be reckoned through Isaac, who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So the promise is the important part. It's not the lineage. But here's what's kind of sad to me because, you know, I was an ICU nurse for 25 years. I still have my license. So I worked with a lot of Jewish people at the hospital. Most of them were doctors. Over and over, they would tell me, they'd kind of ask me a little bit about church and they would kind of make fun of Jesus in a way. Of course, I would banter back and forth with them being me. But they would all tell me they were going to heaven and they were sure of it too. And I would ask them, why? Why are you going? And they would kind of point to their vein in a way because I've got Abraham's DNA. That was their belief. They were going to heaven. So I would kind of ask them, well, are you going to temple? or Are you practicing? No, no, I don't do all that. I'm going to heaven anyway. And they really believe, even to this day, a lot of Jewish people, that they're his chosen people by genetics, and so they're going. Paul is going to give a rebuttal to that tonight, but they, you know, not always want to hear our version because they say the New Testament we've all made up. But they're going to be in for a rude awakening one day when Jesus shows up and tells them, why would you reject me? But it's about the promise. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. It's not the lineage. It's the promise. And if it was lineage, by the way, Ishmael was his son. Ishmael is his DNA. Ishmael is the father of the Muslim race. I don't think Ishmael is going to be in heaven, by the way. I don't really know that, but it's my guess. That's my opinion. Don't you know, email me on that one. But I don't believe he'll be there. I could be a surprise because he clearly is not of the promise. Paul just told us it's about the promise, not the lineage. Isaac was the son of the promise. He was more what I would call the spiritual son of the two. Ishmael is the worldly son. He represents the world because think about how he was conceived. Remember, God made the promise. They got tired of waiting, and they came up with their own dumb idea to have a child with the slave woman. That's how Ishmael came about, and what resulted in that? The whole Muslim problem that we have today that's still attacking Israel. But let's go back to verse 8. That should be a great encouragement to us because we are, you, me, we're the children of the promise. Because he told us in verse 8, let me reread it. It's not the children by physical descent, the DNA. It's the children about the promise, of the promise. That's us. We believe by faith in Jesus. So we're the ones now that are his children. Now, if you're a Messianic Jew, which we have some of those, I think, even in the room tonight, other ones I know that go here, they are Jews that believe in Jesus. They came just like we did. That's the way they have to come now. Same as us. There's no different way. What did Jesus say? I am the way. 
He didn't say there's a couple of ways. They're not a Jewish way and a Gentile way. It's the way. So they have to now come the same way. They have to choose, choose Jesus, and obey. And if you're taking notes, this is the second thing you can write down. Our obedience, it's a promise, but our obedience is what unlocks the promise. It's what I would call a conditional promise. It's not just out there for us to say, oh, I'm going to heaven because of this or that and the other, my genetics or my belief. It's about my obedience and your obedience. Our obedience is really follow. Here at Calvary, we call ourselves Christ followers. It's about following, not believing, following. Let's see what Paul says. Let's keep reading verse 9. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's the point. They got tired of waiting and took matters in their own hand. But not only that, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. Remember, Isaac is where the promise came in. Yet, here's some confusing verses coming up. Before the two twins were born or had done anything good or bad, anything, in order that God's purpose in election or predestination or chosen might stand, Verse 12 says, not by work, so they didn't have to earn their way. She was told, the mom, the younger, excuse me, the older will serve the younger. The older, which was backwards in their culture. But this is the most confusing verse of all for most people. Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You ever wonder about that one? Why did God hate Esau before he was ever born? It just told us before they were born, he predetermined this. Because it can be sort of a hard concept to grasp. It leads to kind of, once again, I would call the big question, why did God hate Esau? Why is that verse in there? Why is that verse in other parts of the Bible? Well, we don't fully know is my answer, but I'll give you my opinion. Because I think we can make a, what I would call an educated guess, because we know God's character we know God is fair, don't we? He loves us. He does not punish people unjustly. He would not have hated Esau without a very good reason, is how I would put it. And I would say he knew Esau's heart before Esau ever came out of that womb. Because all through Scripture, God is consistent. What does his word tell us? It's, remember when David was elected? It's not about the appearance, not about what he looks like. or It's about what? His heart. God knew Esau's heart he also knew that someday, because God knows everything, even though he was still in the womb, he also knew that one day Esau would reject God. He would turn bad and make terrible choices. But let's, let's read a verse out of Hebrews, because maybe you're starting to say, Dave, are you sure about that? Okay, let's go back to the scripture. Let's look at Hebrews. You know these verses. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Esau was a bitter root, by the way, but that's not why I put this verse up here. That's maybe a warning for us. Don't be a bitter root, gossiping, slandering, causing trouble, because we'll defile ourselves and many around us. So that's a bonus point tonight I didn't tell you to write down. Don't be a bitter root. But look at 16. That's the one I want to focus on. See that no one is sexually immoral. Esau was that too, by the way. Or is godless. So what is Esau, according to Hebrews? Godless. That's why God says, Esau, I hated. 
He's godless, but then it follows up, and this is not why he's godless, but this is another thing he did. For a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. God knew what he was going to turn into. God knows what I was going to turn into, what you were going to turn into. So in some ways, yes, we are chosen, pre-elected, predestined, because God knew one day I'd be up here and you'd be right there. He knows what we're going to do in the womb. Good luck getting your head around that one. That's why it's hard to comprehend this whole chosen, elected, predestined stuff. In some ways, I would put it right up there with the Trinity. We kind of understand it, but we really don't fully grasp it until we get to heaven. But here's what also I would tell you. Does it really matter if you were predestined or you made the choice? What matters is you follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, all the rest of it's real relevant. Just get there. That's our challenge, just get there. Then we can figure out later who is right about this whole silly argument. But then it becomes the question, well, since I put the Hebrews verse, why? How is he godless? Give us some details. Okay, I'm glad you asked. Well, God, remember, if you know your Bible, he told Abraham, if you remember, to separate from all those pagan nations. Don't mingle, especially don't marry. Don't, don't intermarry with them because they're just going to corrupt you. What did Esau do? Exactly that. Because God had a plan for his people to be set apart, to be chosen, to be separate from all those worldly pagan nations that were doing horrible things like sexual orgies, baby sacrifices, and you know, statues with red hot arms and things like that. He wanted his people not to be part of that. So he says, do not marry. What did Esau do? Like I said, exactly that. Let's look at another verse in Genesis, Genesis 26. When Esau was 40 years old, that was very young, and remember this is Old Testament, he married Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, one of those ites, also Basimah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And look what happened in 35. They brought grief to his parents, grief to Isaac and Rebekah. But that's not the only time he did this. I'm not going to read the verse for lack of time, but if we were to go to Genesis 28, and we'll be there sometime in February, March, April, something like that, it tells us he deliberately marries two more pagan wives just specifically to make his parents grieve and anguished. He intentionally marries two more. Once he figures out they don't like it, he says, fine, I'll go get two more. And the two more he goes and gets are Ishmael's daughters. So he's really ramped up the kind of I'm going to get my parents back for this. But that's not the biggest problem. It's not that he hurt his parents. He's disobeying God, and he's separating himself from God by disobeying what God said. He's being a godless Esau. You want a little more backstory? Come on, I know you do. Yes, I know you do. See, I know you're the Wednesday people. You like the backstory. I do too, by the way. That's why I put it in here. I can't give you all the verses, once again, for time, but Esau would later father numerous pagan nations. His descendants are mostly bad. They're all those ites, those tribes I just referenced. One of them, I'm going to give you one example. One of them was Edom, and the tribe was called the Edomites, the nation. Edom was always a problem. They were always conflicting with Israel, fighting wars. And if you remember the Exodus story, remember Moses asked Edom, can we pass through your territory? We're going to be peaceful. We're not going to fight. Just let us pass through. What did Edom say? No. 
It made them go a long, giant detour around their country just to be spiteful. That was the Edom, but that's not where it ends. Let's go back to further in the Bible, and really forward. The New Testament, once the Greek language gets to be the predominant language, Edomite translates into Greek as Idumean, Idumean. You might be saying, well, so what? Who's an Idumean? Well, you know one, trust me. When the Roman Empire moved in and started occupying Jerusalem, they put an Idumean as king over Judea. He was king of the whole territory. His name is in my Bible, your Bible, your phone. That king's name is Herod the Great. So Esau fathered Herod. Remember what Herod did? Massacred all the firstborn sons, tried to kill Jesus. Now it's becoming a little more clear why God hated Esau. He knew what Esau was going to do. He would be godless, but not just godless. He would father all these pagan nations that attacked and hurt Israel all its life. So he's, God knows his heart. That's my belief. You can make your own mind up. Like I said, we can't really crystal clear say this is why, but I just gave you pretty strong reasons why I believe that verse is in there. Let me read you a verse out of Proverbs before we move on. This is Proverbs 27. It's 27:19. I think this verse describes Esau to a T. As a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. Let me read that again. As a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the real person. He had a wicked heart. It's, I could give you tons of more examples. We don't have time. But that might help you understand a little bit more why does God say that? You know, but God is, we have to go back to God's character. God loves us. He, he wants the best for his children. He gives us chance after chance to do the right thing. He gave Esau those same chances. But Esau rejected God, and he, he paid a high price. Let's read verse 14, back to our text. What then shall we say? Because this follows, that. remember that 13? I, I kind of segued off on a rabbit trail of backstory. What then shall we say when we read God hated Esau? Is God unjust? Not at all, Paul says. For he says to Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We have to remember the definition, by the way, of mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So when God says, I'll have mercy on who I want, we deserve punishment. Because if we're not careful, even as believers, we start thinking because we believe in Jesus, we deserve mercy and grace. That's exactly the opposite of what we deserve. If you're writing things down, our next point's a little harsh, but it, it, we need to hear it. What we earn for our sin is punishment. We don't earn mercy or grace. That's why it's given to us freely. We earn punishment. So if God shows more mercy to some or grace, who are we to challenge or who are we to complain about it? None of us deserve it. That's the bottom line. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift. That's what's so awesome about God's grace and mercy. None of us deserve anything but punishment. And we were, if you were here this weekend and the week before, by the way, Pastor David at first and then Brian last week talked about the cross. That's what we deserved. We deserve that cross, not Jesus. So we earn punishment, not grace and mercy. So if God chooses to sow some more, who are we to challenge? We'll see that even more clear in a minute. 
Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, we can't work for it, but it all depends on God's mercy. And we'll see that in 17 and 18. For here's another example. For scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he, who he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We have to be careful on this couple of verses. We don't try to put our own human ideas in the equation. In other words, is God being fair to Pharaoh? Why did he harden? But if you remember the story, Pharaoh had chance after chance. He hardened his own heart more than once, a few times. And finally, God says, okay, I see what you're going to be like. I'll harden it all the way for you. And he cranked it up a notch until the point of no return. Because we really can't try to think, well, is that fair? God is God. He is the ultimate fairness. He's not going to punish people unjustly. Because if we read that verse, we might say, well, did God make Pharaoh, in other words, did he predestine Pharaoh to be bad? Did he predestine him to be punished? Just to make it a good example of him for the rest of us. Well, that wouldn't be fair, would it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it would be. But let's go back to the Pharaohs for a second. Who did the Pharaohs all say they were? God. We are God. So they are false gods. He deserved punishment for that one, by the way. And he was also a terrible ruler, abusing his own people. The, the Pharaohs were terrible to their people. So he was not a nice guy that God turned bad for his purposes. Pharaoh made himself bad. He chose bad, is how I would put it. But there's another term in Scripture I'm going to visit tonight. It's called gave over. You ever seen that in your Bible? That they're gave over. We're going to look at that in two different places. I'm going to go back and read us a verse. If you were here for our Romans series, this was on our first night in Romans chapter 1. Here's what Romans 1, 24 says. Remember, that chapter 1 was about sexual sin and immorality, all kind of crazy bad stuff. Romans 1, 24 says, Therefore, because of those behaviors... God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. It's back to their heart again. But he gave them over. Okay, if you want to be bad, I'll give you over to that lifestyle. But let's look at another version. Let's look at one on screen. Psalm 81. What I'm not going to read, but we can read together. Here's what it says. This is God speaking. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So look what God does. I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk by their own plans. Not my plan, to their plan, our plan. The same way we were before we became believers in Jesus. We walked under our own plan. There's a ton of other examples I could have used. It's all through Scripture that God will give certain people over to their evil desires. Let's keep reading verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? In other words, if we're predestined and predetermined, why does he still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? Well, I would say don't resist his will. We should stay in God's will. <coughs> don't resist it, stay in it. If we stay in it, we're guaranteed entry into heaven. Only the people that resist and fight and do their own dumb ideas are the ones that fight God and resist. As believers, 
we should be in his will, not resisting it. But let's keep reading, verse 20. It's kind of a funny verse in a way. But who are you, talking to me and you, a human being to talk back to God? Well, we're nobody. I'll help us out. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Verse 21, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes, like Moses, for example, and others for common use? Yes. And this train of thought is nothing new. This kind of mindset has been around since the Old Testament. Let's look at a verse out of Isaiah, Isaiah 45. Woe, there's a good word, woe to those who quarrel with God. So don't quarrel with God is my advice. You'll get a bunch of woe. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. In other words, we're all broken pottery. We're broken people. We're nothing but broken pots. What right do we have to say, God, why did you make me like this? Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? No. We don't have the right to question God. He's God and we're not. If I start questioning God, my question to myself would be, then is God Lord? Lord means in charge, last time I checked. We don't get to question the guy in charge. Lord means, yes, Lord, whatever you say, it goes. But we have to trust his character. He's going to be looking. We sang the song, he loves us. He does love us. He's going to do the right thing for us. God is going to be fair. We don't have to wonder about what's right or what's fair. We're just the clay. We don't get the right to question. But let's read 22. It kind of gives us a partial explanation. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience? And I'll come back to that. Great patience. The objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Because I think, let's put... Pharaoh in this equation. Didn't Pharaoh get chance after chance after chance? God gave great patience in that scenario. How many miracles did Moses do and he still wouldn't believe? He was waiting all the time for Pharaoh to make the right choice. He bore that with great patience. He eventually became an object of God's wrath, but only after he messed up time after time after time. God was waiting. That's the great patience, I believe. But also, let's read those last three words close, because I think some people want to twist this part. Prepared for destruction. What it doesn't say, in my Bible anyway, that God prepared them for destruction. We kind of read in that. We want to read God prepared them, don't we? It's just kind of natural. It doesn't really say that if you really look at it closer. It just says they were prepared for destruction. I would make the case, my opinion again, they prepared themselves for destruction, like Pharaoh, for example. All those bad choices prepared his destruction. God said he had great patience. It doesn't say God prepared them in advance for destruction. So we have to be careful with that one. I think, personally, they, they prepared themselves by disobedience. Like Esau, he was godless. He prepared his own way. He could have chosen the right thing, but he didn't. But we're going to see another interesting point in a few minutes. And tie that, by the way, to the point I just made while I go about gave over. When you make bad choices, when God gives you over to your own dumb ideas and dumb evil ways, you've prepared your own destruction by your choices. They chose 
disobedience. But verse 23 is interesting. God can use that disobedience like Pharaoh to glorify himself. Remember all those miracles parting the Red Sea? Because of Pharaoh's disobedience, we get the Red Sea story. God can use people's disobedience for his glory, and we'll see that in 23. Let's read it. What if he did this, this prepared for destruction, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Look around tonight. You are the objects of his mercy. We are, the ones watching online, whom he prepared in advance for glory. So he prepared us for glory and he uses these people that are prepared for destruction by disobedience to show his power, his glory, his greatness, like the Red Sea story, for example. So when God does use an unbeliever for his glory, since I'm the clay, I have no right to question what he's doing. I just have to say, man, God is so great. Look what he did in that Red Sea. He parted that. There was no way out. God did that. That's what that verse means about we are the ones preparing and we get to witness, but those people put themselves in a bad spot. Which brings up our next main point. I think it's the very shortest point I've ever come up with in my whole life. It's two words. Trust God. Just trust God. He will work it out. He knows what he's doing. Remember, he's Lord. I don't need to question the methods. I just need to follow Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. If we do that little simple thing and trust God, we don't have to worry about all this chosen, elected, predestined stuff. Just trust God. None of the people that are these prepared for destruction people did. That's the bad choice they made. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles... He's talking about all the believers now, but he's going to give another backstory example, and I'll help us out with a little more backstory. In verse 25, he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, that's the Gentiles, us, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, once again, us. Then verse 26 says, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So this backstory, we don't have time to read it. I'm just going to summarize this, and I'm not going to turn or put a verse up. If you read the book of Hosea, Hosea's wife was promiscuous and unfaithful. And she was symbolic of what Israel was doing. Israel was also promiscuous and unfaithful with other gods. Remember, they were worshiping Baal, making altars and shrines and Ashtaroth poles, burning their children alive in little you know, red-hot statues' arms, crazy stuff. So God uses Hosea's wife as this symbolic representation of the nation. Well, she eventually has a daughter. She has a daughter who God told Hosea to name Lo-Ruhamah, Lo-Ruhamah, which translates in English as not loved. And what God was saying is Israel is no longer, I don't love Israel. She's no longer my beloved. Then his wife has a son due to this unfaithfulness. And then the son, they, God tells Hosea to name him Lo-Ami, Lo-Ami. That translates to not my people. So now his two children are named not loved and not my people. God was once again saying, I don't love Israel and they're not my people. 
That's what he's saying. But just so we're clear, they're still his chosen. We'll get to that a little bit tonight. We'll get to it a whole lot in chapter 11. They're still his chosen, but they have to choose Jesus, just like we do. They don't get the DNA, the lineage, the, the other way by killing animals. Those ways are over. Jesus is the game changer. Everybody goes through Jesus. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Gentile, doesn't matter if you're Muslim. Many Muslims convert, but they have to go through Jesus. Everybody goes to heaven through Jesus. One way. Amen. Let's keep reading. Verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, the prophet. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. The reason those two were brought up, remember, they were wiped out. There was no remnant, none. What these verses are telling us, God, even though he maybe wipes out most of the people, puts them into exile, punishes them terribly, he always preserves a remnant. He wants his people preserved. He wants Israel as his chosen people preserved if they'll do the right thing and believe in Jesus. Because think back to your Bible history once again. They went in captivity to Assyria. God preserved some of them. They later went to Babylon under exile. God preserved some. In modern times, 1948, they come back to the nation of Israel. God preserved a remnant. But right now, if you go to Israel, hardly anybody believes in God, much less Jesus. They're a pagan nation is like America is for the most part. Most of Israel does not believe. There's some sort of the fundamentalists do. And, but it's kind of interesting. More and more young people are now open to the gospel. Some of them are believing in Jesus. They're going to enter heaven like we did by believing in Jesus. So they are still his chosen, but once again, now there's a condition attached to it. Let's read verse 30. What, what, what does verse 30 say? What then shall we say that the Gentiles, us, who did not pursue righteousness, they've now obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith. That's the key. It's by faith. But look what it says about Israel, his own people, his own nation, verse 31. But the people of Israel, the Jews, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. They missed the boat because they missed Jesus. Why not? I'm going to read the first half of 32. 32a is what I'll call it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by works. They were trying to work their way by rules and regulations. And in some ways, I would make the case, verse 30 through 33, they're like a synopsis of the gospel. We're saved by faith, not by works, not by following the Old Testament law. They're also a great illustration of following Jesus because it's about faith, not just blind faith, faith in the Messiah, faith in Jesus, faith that he's the only way. That's how they have to get there. But just in case you're doubting me, we're going to read a couple of verses as we get ready to close. The, the second half of 32, and I'm going to put a verse in Matthew up in a second. Let's look at 32b. Here's what happened to Israel. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, verse 33. 
See, I lay a, in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But look, he talks about you now. Look at what it says about us. The one who believes in him, believes in Jesus, will never be put to shame. So we will never be put to shame because we have faith in Jesus. That's the part Israel's got to correct. But just in case you're wondering, there, this verse is in a few different places. I like the one in Matthew a lot, Matthew 21. Let's read it together. This one makes it even more clear, I think. The stone the builders rejected, the builders would be Israel, the Jews, the stone is Jesus, has become the cornerstone, the chief stone, the main stone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, talking to the Jews again, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people in Melbourne, Florida. <laughs> That's what he means. I'm serious. It'll be taken away and given to a people who will produce fruit. We're supposed to produce fruit. We're the Gentiles because they weren't. They dropped the ball. But look what it says in 44. This is the part I really like. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but that's a good thing. I'll explain in a second. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So what that verse is telling us, even though it sounds kind of confusing, will be broken to pieces. What it really means, fall at Jesus' feet. Be broken of yourself. Be broken of your old life. Be broken of choosing the wrong thing. Be broken of dumb ideas that we've had in the past. Be broken until you're remade in a new creation. Because to be a new creation, like Scripture talks about, you've got to be broken first. So it's our choice. There's your two choices, crystal clear. Fall at his feet and be broken in a good way. Or if you resist, like Pharaoh, Esau, these other people, the stone will drop on your head and crush you like a grape. You will be crushed, and it's a permanent crush. You don't get in by your blood and DNA and genetics. You get in the same way we all got in, through faith in Jesus. That's what those verses mean. So, what does all that mean to us? Well, hopefully, you believe in Jesus. But if you don't, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching online, you've got a big choice, and it's really your choice. You can be like Esau and Pharaoh, choose to be godless, or you can fall at Jesus' feet, let him break you in a good way, and become a follower of Jesus. So we're going to pray and close, and I'm, I'll be down here after the service ends. This is Wednesday night, so I think most of you here are probably believers, but if you're not, or if you're wondering, or maybe you've walked away, you just want somebody to pray for you to come back and follow, be all in for Jesus, I'll be down here. I'd love to pray with you. It's not magic words like Brian says on the weekend. It's about your heart. Remember, it's about the heart. It's your heart saying, I want to follow Jesus. I've been making mistakes, dumb decisions. I want to get it right tonight and follow Jesus. So let's just pray about that tonight. Lord, tonight, we love you, and Lord, I just pray that everyone here has made the choice to fall at your feet and be broken of self. But if anyone here has not made that choice, Lord, I hope they do not leave here tonight without choosing to follow you. So, Father, just speak to them, touch their heart, and help us that do believe, Lord, follow you more. Equip us, empower us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, 
Let us be a daily reflection of you, Lord. And we need more of you in us to be where people see us and they really see you, Lord. So, Father, we need your help. We're imperfect, broken people. Use us to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said amen. Amen.